everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz, and today, Lindsay, Pools, and I will be discussing chapters 42 through 44 of Troubled Blood. Please be warned that, as always, our discussion of Troubled Blood will reference events that occur later in the book, as well as previous books in the series. So I guess let's go ahead and we'll get started with chapter 42. And for chapter 42, Strike is at home the day after his fight with Robin, and he reflects on what happens. And then he receives a phone call from the Athorn's social worker, quote unquote, and gets more unwanted texts from Charlotte. Yay. God, more Charlotte. And I really love the epigraph for this one, which goes, his late fight with Britomart so sore did him offend that ride he could not till his hurts he did amend. I feel like this set of epigraphs for these last few chapters and the coming ones are so on point that Mm -hmm. they must have been the ones she organized everything around. She must have found these first for the turning point of the novel, right? I would love to ask her how she chooses the epigraphs and what that whole process is like because these ones and the ones in the next set are so good. They're so good. They're so perfect. There's so much to talk about in them and dissect. I just love them. And yet they're so, so clear. So Britomart has been paralleled with Robin throughout mm-hmm. and Strike is Artigal. And so he fought with Robin and he's really upset about it. And he can't move forward and do what he needs to do until things are right with Robin and he fixes things. So the chapter starts with him waking up and piecing together what happened. Which is really impressive that he can. Yeah, That is very impressive. He drank a lot. Like that he he has any memories at all. And then the fact that he can actually kind of figure out what he did is wow. But then slowly he reconstructed Robin's complaints, arriving late and drunk, being rude to her brother and upsetting a dinner party by telling a couple of students what he considered home truths about the real world. He also thought there'd been a mention of him being insufficiently touchy-feely with Steph. He's very much minimizing. I mean, even calling them Robin's complaints here is kind of minimizing them. But then, you know, listing them off insufficiently touchy-feely, upsetting a dinner party by telling the truth. He's very much minimizing and because he's in that defensive, angry stage where he's not ready to admit that he was wrong. He's not mentioning at all what the real complaints were. He's still justifying it. Yeah, he's justifying himself. And he hasn't reflected yet. Can we talk real quick about this touchy-feely phrase? Because I know that it confused some people. Did it? Yeah. Oh. Well, for me, touchy-feely means physically touching someone. Oh. So the way that I would use it would be like, that couple's very touchy-feely with each other. They're always touching each other. Or in a complaint, like, ugh, that coworker's so touchy-feely. He's always touching me. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's how I interpret it, too. That is the only way I would ever use touchy-feely. And so when I read this, it did throw me for a second. I mean, obviously, oh, wow. I can understand the context of what it means. But yeah, I was confused for a second. And I know that other people were because we had lots of conversations about it. I must have missed those because I... I don't know. It seemed normal to be insufficiently touchy-feely. It's like in, insufficiently in touch with your mo insufficiently nice, you know, insufficiently metaphorically huggy. Yeah, that's not what it means to me. So it really, it's, um, it was interesting. I'm wondering whether this is a cultural thing and whether touchy-feely in England does mean sort of being nice. I wouldn't use touchy-feely for someone who is too touchy, would I? 
I'm questioning my own existence right now. I'll get back to you on that. We can move on. This is not that interesting. It's I just... have complained about dudes being too touchy, but mm-hmm. like, how have I phrased it? Because now I'm thinking about it. I have no idea. I would say touchy-feely. That yeah. creep is so touchy-feely. I don't think I would say that. Grabby, maybe. Yeah, grabby too grabby. Would I would probably say too grabby. Yeah. This is a weird thing to get fixated on. No, but those things are interesting to me. The yeah. differences in language and that one phrase can mean something totally different depending on where you're from. And then we get to segue into thinking about strike in the shower. So, I mean, it's really all worth it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, hundred percent. So Carmen in the shower thinking, and I love how his thoughts turn towards his mother here. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff because this is the book where we start to get the flaws in, in Lita a lot mm-hmm. more than just that he loved her. So let me read the quote here. Lita Strike's whole life had been a battle against constraint of any kind. Going for a march in her underwear would have seemed to her just one more fabulous blow against limitations. Strike who never forgot Lita's generous heart or her ineradicable love of the underdog, was nevertheless clear-eyed about the fact her activism had mostly taken the form of enthusiastic exhibitionism. Not for Lita, the tedious toil of door-to-door canvassing, the difficult business of compromise, or the painstaking work structural change entailed. Never a deeper critical thinker, she'd been a sucker for what Strike thought of as intellectual charlatans. The basis for her life's philosophy, if such a word could be used for the loose collection of whims and knee-jerk reactions she called beliefs, was that everything of which the bourgeoisie disapproved must be good and right. Naturally, she'd have sided with Cal and Courtney in championing pornography and slut walks, and she'd have seen her son's quibbles as something he must have picked up from her killjoy sister-in-law. It's funny that of all of the people that was referenced there at the end, that it was Joan that was referenced and not head i get the sense that there was antagonism between them and that definitely lita would have judged joan for being a stick in the mud and a killjoy and that sort of conventional oh my gosh you're so boring and that joan would have and did judge the shit out of lita for a whole host of things yeah i'm very much team joan on this one mm-hmm. yeah Good for you joan yeah, and Lita might have seen Jonah's competition too for the love of her children. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there would have been antagonism between them because they're such different people. There's a source of conflict in the children that is so emotional for both of them that their relationship, I don't think, would have been a very positive one. And then Ted in the middle, loving his sister, loving his wife, and trying to protect the kids without ruining either relationship, I guess. All his thoughts on Lita are interesting. Mm-hmm. comparing her to Courtney isn't great well seems accurate not exactly a flattering comparison right sure yeah I found it really interesting that you know while he's mulling over these comparisons of Courtney to his mother that he points out as he's done in the past I'm pretty sure that her generous heart and her love of the underdog and stuff I find it interesting that that's what he values most about her because that really seems to be the two traits that he's taken after the most yeah i too was sort of thinking how much is strike like lita deep down because i do think he has a generous heart i think that he gave way too much of his heart to charlotte for too long a time and that he got burned so i think that we've seen him close himself off a bit like we haven't seen him 
give that generous heart to his girlfriends, for example. But I do, I do think he has a generous heart there and that we see glimpses of it and that he's protecting himself with some of his behavior. And the love of the underdog is spot on. Strike loves yeah. an underdog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Robin knew he loved an underdog by the start of Silkworm when she said, oh no, I knew you took on Mrs. Quine because she's your type. And Billy Knight, Lethal White. Billy Knight, Lethal White. He loves him an underdog. I think that he too, so he talks about Lita battling against constraint. And I think that he too battles against constraint, but in a different way. So Lita is fighting against any kind of convention or rule or restriction, right? But Strike is different in that I think he finds convention rules in some respect comforting because I guess he didn't have them growing up. So that's why he liked being in the army. The army is all convention and rules. But his constraint is he battles against having a responsibility and having emotional ties to other people, but particularly to women. So he battles against constraints that he feels put demands on him or make him responsible for other people's happiness like his constraint is against any sort of tie that might keep him from being free and independent you know to the point that it leaves him lonely and and hurting other people with this and i mean we can see exactly how lita's upbringing of him made him this way because he's been responsible for probably lucy's safety from early childhood he was probably felt responsible for his mother's safety we know he did and that didn't work out very well so i think that this battle against constraints is interesting because he needs to recognize that he sort of does this himself just in a different way and that part of his healing because this this series i think is a healing journey for him that he's going to be understanding that that some constraints sometimes other people are actually freeing like the quote said you know getting married means that you have your hands free because the constraint is tied to your back right so an emotional commitment to the right woman as we know it sort of gives his generous heart the space in which it can flourish and give you were also saying that you love the criticism oh yeah i do the criticism of that sort of sort of lazy exhibitionist activism that doesn't actually do anything i like that how he thinks of change is coming from compromise and work and being structural in nature rather than doing some virtue signaling on social media and, and then calling it a day without ever actually having an impact on the real world I just, I like that that criticism is dropped in here because I agree with it. It is important that he's having these honest conversations with himself about Leda Mm -hmm. because up until now, we've only seen him reflect on the good things. Yeah. And that he loved her and she loved him. And that's important because I don't know, I would maybe imagine that since she's gone, you can't really confront those things. So maybe focusing on the good is his priority. I've had conversations with people about how he's less critical of Leda than he is of Rokeby when they're equally not great. That's a very generous description. (laughs) Not great. I mean, I understand this because he had a loving relationship with Leda. He didn't have any relationship with Rokeby. So I understand him being uh, more generous with her, even though I'm angry at both of them. Yeah, she was a mess and Leda was a terrible parent, but... Mm -hmm she was actually there and I mean this leads me to some thoughts I've had about Carmen and parenthood if I can do this because we've seen that Carmen doesn't like kids he's not sentimental about kids although he likes Jack but Jack's special but I think that evidence shows that Carmen does actually take parenting as serious business 
Yeah. He thinks that being a parent, particularly being a father, I think he sees it as a responsibility and something very important. So, you know, he saved Anstis because he knew that Anstis had a newborn. It was instinctive to try and protect that parent. I think that having his own father be completely absent makes him take the job pretty seriously. And Carmen has one rule and it's do the job and do it well, right? And Leda didn't do the job well. But Rokeby didn't do it at all. And I think yeah. that that is the worst sin for Carmen, not being there to even try. Because try and fail versus just piss off and don't do anything. Yeah, I think we'll know which one Carmen will have better feelings for. So next what happens is the thought of calling to apologize comes up, but he dismisses it because he's sticking to what he knows from Charlotte. Mm-hmm. I love that he always compares his relationship with Robin to Charlotte. He doesn't compare it to his relationship with Ilsa or with Lucy. He knows. What could be different? <laughs> no, that doesn't sound right. I think the sibling relationship makes a lot more sense for him and Robin. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Attempting to make up with Charlotte before every last ounce of her fury had been spent had been like trying to rebuild a house during an earthquake. Sometimes after he refused to accede to some new demand, usually leaving the army, but sometimes giving up contact with another female friend or refusing to spend money he didn't have, all of which were seen by Charlotte as proof he didn't love her. That sounds exhausting. Yeah, she she sure does. Do we know if Charlotte ever tried to stop him being friends with Ilsa? I mean, it makes sense. I feel like that's the case. And I feel like it's likely that every time he was with Charlotte, he ended up distanced from Nick mm-hmm. and Ilsa. That's why I think he didn't go to them in cuckoo's calling calling. when normally he would have because he probably hadn't seen them he probably dropped out of touch a bit yeah or not been as close because well we know abusive people in relationships try to sever ties and Mm -hmm. isolate right yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah i think it's likely i think it's sad it is sad reading this i understand why he's doing this Mm -hmm. she does such a good job of contextualizing the position to a point where you can like really understand where he's coming from. Now, if you had this, oh, I'm not going to apologize unless she apologized first without giving context, then you might be like, oh, well, that's kind of shitty. But here you have the context for it. And while it's still shitty, you understand where all that is coming from. And she just yeah. does a really good mm-hmm. job of making you see kind of both sides of it. Yeah, I think so. She does a good job of making clear that, that this is a survival strategy for him mm-hmm. that this is like you said Lynn's a learned behavior and I think it really shows the way that this long abusive relationship with Charlotte has shaped him and the way he relates to women in a really profound and fundamental sort of way and we, we've seen the practical effects of that many times but now it's being laid out clearly and he's acknowledging it and I think that's the first step to unlearning this and figure out new ways of relating to someone he loves. And this is the point, I think, where he's starting to realize that. There's a brief mention here of among all the chores that he's doing while he's getting ready to leave the next day that he gets this invitation to Rokeby's party and rips it up. Mm -hmm. Rokeby just will not stop. My God, get a hint. Read the room. Anyway, how is he getting all this done when he's hungover? (laughs) Right. I find that very impressive because for me, it's like I'm on the couch with a Gatorade and I'm watching Netflix all day. Mm -hmm. He did have a bacon roll earlier. So maybe that's Hmm. the key. The bacon roll is the key. Throughout the day, it says his thoughts kept returning to Robin. 
Gradually, he realized that what was bothering him most was the fact that he got used to Robin being on his side, which was one of the main reasons he tended to seek reasons to call her if he was at a loose end or feeling low. Over time, they developed a most soothing and satisfying camaraderie, and Strike hadn't imagined it would be disrupted by what he categorized as a dinner party row. When his phone rang at four o'clock in the afternoon, he surprised himself by snatching it up in hopes that it was his partner. I just think it's so cute. He snatched up the phone and he surprised himself. Yeah, he wants to hear from her so much and he wants to make it right, even though he hasn't really admitted that to himself yet. What's bothering him most is that he was used to her being on his side. Mm -hmm. Is it bothering him because he's realizing that it's unfair? You put here, you're wondering whether or not it was because he's realizing that he's been unfair because he's afraid of losing the camaraderie they have. And I think that at this point, it's mainly the camaraderie, but we're starting to see as the chapter progresses that get the realization that he's been kind of a dick is patching up with him pretty quickly yeah i would agree with you there kens i think that grammatically the way the sentence is set up he is what's bothering him is the fact that he got used to robin being on his side not robin not being on his side suddenly right i don't know i think that the sentence is structured this way and i could be reaching here but it reads this way for a reason and it's because he has suddenly had his perspective on their relationship and what they are to each other and what they have between them shifted a bit and realizing that maybe they're not as perfect, as good and soothing as he thought they were, or maybe not in an equal way. And when it says he hadn't imagined it could be disrupted by what he categorized as a dinner party row, I think that he's starting to reconsider that categorization and realize that it wasn't just the dinner party row that was disrupting things, but it was something a bit deeper, the sort of patterns of taking her for granted, the pattern of not realizing everything she does, the pattern of not telling her what she means to him, the sort of unequal aspects of their relationship are what is actually disrupting it. And this dinner party row is just just the excuse, just the spark. I like that it says one of the main reasons he tended to seek reasons to call her what are the other ones, dude? What mm. could they be? For some reason, he just always wants to call her. He's got it bad. That's his reason. He sure does. Mm -hmm. Idiot. Another thing about this, I like that he phrased it. He snatched it up in the hopes that it was his partner. Not yeah. Robin. I just, I like it when he thinks of her as his partner. Because it shows that even if there are some issues in their relationship, he has to fix. He does see her as an equal and as his partner. But it is not Robin on the phone. No. It is Claire. I'm saying this with big air quotes because, spoiler alert, we all know that it is not Claire. It is our killer, Janice, mm -hmm. who is yep. masquerading as the Athorn social worker to basically watch over her burial site, mm -hmm. which Marcos, is super creepy. Yeah, yeah Marcos. Mm -hmm. You think she got any kicks out of revisiting the scene of the crime all the time? Absolutely. Oh, every time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because this is really her biggest success, right? I mean, I don't think that any of her other victims were as high profile as Margot Bamborough was. Yeah, Margot's the one. She had a whole folder of newspaper clippings for Margot. And I'm guessing that she sat on that ottoman every time she went over there. And it's horrific. That is, but you're so right. Serial killer shit. Yeah. Creepy. <laughs> I know that technically Strike reaches out to her. Mm-hmm as the Athorn social worker and calls her, but she could have easily just not called back and it would have been believable. 
So this to me is just classic killer MO of inserting themselves into the investigation, either for fun or to try and find out how much information the other side has. Yep. She just can't help herself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she does that. I mean, we'll talk about in this call, but she searches for information here. Mm -hmm. This is great on a reread after knowing what we know, knowing who this is, knowing some of Janice's motivations. It says, thanks for getting back to me, Mrs. Uh, Miss Spencer. Mrs., she said, sounding very slightly amused. It's so funny because we know Janice's fixation on being married. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she makes her fictional social worker married. Here's another bit. Can I just ask, are you the Cormoran Strike? I doubt there are many others, said Strike. <laughs> Janice, she's already met him. She knows very well who he is. Mm-hmm. She really is a very good liar. Yeah, she's a great actress. And I'm. she must be really, really good at disguising her voice and confident in her ability to disguise her voice if she's completely fooling Strike here. Because even with a change in accent, she's very much risking him recognizing her actual voice, isn't she? Yeah. Here's another funny quote. Well, it was a bit of a shock to get a message from you. How do you know the Athorns? Their name came up, said Strike, thinking how very inaccurate a statement that was. <laughs> that is funny because it's so inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, because mm-hmm. there's so much talk about Applethorpe. Yeah. When I reread this, I immediately think of Janice and Irene. So is that the purpose here to make us think of Janice and Irene? Possibly. I yeah. wouldn't put it past the writing. Yeah. It is a very funny joke, though. <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. It made me laugh, too. Well, it also goes back to how she so often hides clues and humor to mm-hmm. distract us. Yes. So mm-hmm. we should pay extra attention to things that are funny. Definitely. Yeah. No laughing. There is a clue here <laughs> and we must figure it out. Don't you dare laugh at that fart joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It was a clue the whole time. Very awkward, uncomfortable clue. Okay. Let's see what else. When she brings up Strike threatening the neighbor downstairs, Mm -hmm. she calls him a horror and mentions that he wants to buy the whole building. And I think that's funny because it would be a horror to her if somebody bought out the whole building, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely it would be. That wouldn't be great. No, it would be real bad for her. Although at this point, I doubt that finding the body would lead anyone to Janice. All she would have to do is disappear as their social worker, right? But Maybe. then they'd be like, what if someone's been impersonating a social worker and be on the lookout for a woman of Janice's description? So shit, maybe that wouldn't be good for her. It would be bad. Yeah. She also mentions the ceiling sagging, which just I think is bringing our attention back to something is making the ceiling sag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a clue. But at the same time, I like the way she lies about getting a surveyor in who said that the structure was fine. So we know that probably never happened because the surveyor would say, oh, shit, you've got a load of concrete pressing down on the support beam. (laughs) But so she says that she's discrediting the downstairs guy that we already think is a bit of an asshole. And she's ensuring that Strike and the reader are going to dismiss any claims about the sagging ceiling because this nice social worker got a man in to check and this guy is lying. Uh, And we trust social workers, right? Just the way we trust nurses. (laughs) Mm. Clever. So Janice Clare says, anyway, you did a good thing there, warning him off. Good for her. Exactly. It's one of those things that makes her look like a good person, but it's actually her covering her own ass. Yeah, exactly. I really wish that we could see inside of her head during this phone call, because 
when that moment after Strike explains all about Margot and how he found the Athorns, I would just love to see the wheels turning and she's probably trying to think fast. What should I do? What should I say? Assessing everything. She is very, very good at thinking on her on her feet. I like the little line from Strike here. He had the impression that his actions with regard to the bullying Ironmonger had put her on his side. The absolute layers of deception there. She's not on his side. She's manipulating him and he's falling for it. And she's getting what she wants and leading him the way that he needs to be led. And it makes a reread really good. (laughs) So many of these things are so obvious in hindsight. Mm. Upon a second read, it's very cool. Here's this next bit. Deborah told me something I found slightly concerning. It involved a doc. Sorry, understatement. <laughs> yeah. It involved a doctor called Dr. Brenner, who was a partner of Dr. Bamborough's at the St. John's practice. She might have been referring to a medical examination, but he thought Claire had said something. Sorry? No, nothing. What exactly did she tell you? What do you think she could have said? Hmm. Because it's put there for a reason. What did she say? Did she almost trip up? I don't know. My thought upon this read was that maybe she was going to maybe correct something that he said and caught herself Mm -hmm. just in time because she knows. Right. Yeah, that's very possible. Because then she asks immediately after, oh, well, what do you know? So she was probably backpedaling just a little bit. What do we think of Claire's story about Gwiller pimping out Deborah? I know that there's more in the book to suggest that that's true. But it is hard to trust her because she has a very good reason for wanting Strike to suspect him. She's very good at mixing truth and lies. And it seems like a very plausible story to me, unfortunately. Oh, definitely. I mean, we can't know, can we? Because she's such a good liar. But if I had to put money on it, I'd put money on that sounds pretty likely, actually. Yeah. But here she's using it to turn the focus away from her. Yeah, this bit is interesting when he says, how reliable would you say Samhain's memory is? Why? What's he told you? (laughs) She doesn't answer. She tries to figure out, why do you want to know? Yep. She's fishing. Could be talking about something that might lead Strike back to her. She said, people with fragile X usually have quite good long-term memory, said Claire cautiously. I'd say he'd be more reliable about things his uncle Tudor told him than on many subjects. So it's fine when he's pointing strike towards Richie or Gwilym, but don't trust anything else he says in case Mm -hmm. it's about her. Yeah, just in case, hedging her bets a little. I also like this is sort of, here's the fragile X clue, the mention of the syndrome, and then the clue later is that Janice says the same thing and knows the name. Things that she's peppering in here that are signals that I don't think anyone would be able to catch unless it was a reread, but they are Mm -hmm. there, you know. Yeah. Like this next bit, that people don't stop needing help at weekends, she said dryly, after Strike thanks her for getting back to him. And that itself is also something significant, that she gets back to him so quickly on a weekend. Mm -hmm. And we don't know it's a clue yet, but our attention is drawn to the fact by him thanking her. We just don't know our attention is being drawn. And then she says, good luck. I hope you find out what happened to that poor doctor. But he could tell by her tone, however friendly, that she thought it highly unlikely. Because she's cocky. Mm-hmm. And definitely doesn't actually hope that he yeah. wants it out. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't think she's going to get caught. 
All right, now we get to the good stuff again. Okay, here we go. Yes. By the way, it says he makes himself some food and says that he thinks he deserves it from all the work he did today. I thought that was cute. Yeah, he's earned it. He worked hard. He earned it. He worked hard today. (laughs) Through all these tasks, he kept an ear out for his mobile in case a text from Robin arrived, but nothing came. Good Good for you, Robin. Yeah, Mm -hmm. good for her. I like the way he sees these texts come in and that they're long. And this line where he's like, Robin appeared to have begun the reconciliation process as women were wont to do with an essay on her various grievances. Getting like Lorelai flashbacks. Yeah, Lorelai flashbacks. He opened the first message magnanimously prepared to accept almost any terms for a negotiated peace shit he's being (laughs) he goes into these texts with certain expectations that are this is how women behave robin is finally acting the way women do and we'll be able to move past it now and then he gets like this metaphorical slap upside the head with what actually comes through right it's great three very long texts that are so manipulative super manipulative just yeah i mean how she's like i want to die most days are you going to come see me (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. well and she because she's putting this on him right like if you don't come see me i want to die so what are you going to do about it yeah the bit about not wanting jago to touch her about not wanting more kids bringing up sex like that i think she's fishing in a very specific pond which is the physical connection between them that she knows draws him back and is one of her primary weapons right right and this sort of bring up i don't want more kids is sort of her trying to backtrack the fact that she had kids she wants to bring back that tie between them right that neither of them want kids she wants to remind him of the good times anyway it was gross the good times she's clearly not mentally healthy but that doesn't mean she can't be super manipulative as well reminding him of what she did for him Mm -hmm. i was there for you i did this when your leg end of sentence (laughs) like i did when your leg she can't even no she can't type i love how these texts are full of typos yeah yeah so reminding him like i did for you now do for me She's lucid enough to tell him where she is and to send that final message. Oh, it's Charlotte, in case that isn't obvious. Bit of a tone shift there, eh? Mm -hmm. A bit of a signal that maybe she's putting some of this on. I don't Mm. know. I thought so anyways. Strike read the entire thread through twice. Then he closed his eyes and like millions of his fellow humans wondered why troubles could never come singly, but in avalanches so that you became increasingly destabilized with every blow that hit you. He chooses to fix one trouble here, and it's not Charlotte. He reaches out to Robin after this because I think he realizes that if he wants stability and if he wants comfort and if he wants to be able to withstand this avalanche, it's not Charlotte. Yeah, Charlotte causes the avalanche. Yeah. Yeah. Apologize to Robin already, dude. Waited long enough. Let's go on to chapter 43, shall we? So chapter 43... Robin has a heart-to-heart with Max and Strike calls to apologize. No. And the epigraph is wonderful. It says, And you, fair lady knight, my dearest dame, relent the rigor of your wrathful will, whose fire were better turned to other flame, and wiping out remembrance of all ill, grant him your grace. Oh, that's so sweet. This is another one that's pretty straightforward, right? 
Yeah, I think so. The chapter opens with Robin reflecting on how the morning after the fight went with her guests. I'm yeah. glad that they left early. Courtney <laughs> seemed especially low. Robin faked a cheery briskness that she certainly didn't feel. I really hope you're right that Courtney um, thinks about all of this. I talk about them as if like they're real people. Yeah. I really hope she does better. I too also hope that Courtney uses this as a chance to think about some stuff and maybe mm -hmm. grow as a person. Because that's, again, early 20s or four, having horrible, ridiculous mistakes. I don't know how you have a good day. Their day is going to be so awkward. I cannot even imagine being on a, a fly on the wall for that sightseeing trip. But I want Courtney to reflect and grow. I want Kyle to get hit by one of those big red buses. <laughs> a double-decker bus? Double-decker bus. I'd be fine with him getting shoved in the way of one of those. Like Mean Girl style. Mean Girl yeah. style. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I want to see John apologize to his sister for bringing those shitty friends of his over. Yeah. I'm kind of sad that we didn't get to see that. I can't remember who said it, but somebody mentioned like, oh, I hope that Linda doesn't hear about this from John and dislike Strike even more. And I remember thinking... He's never going to mention this to Linda. He doesn't want anyone to know. No. Because he comes off looking real bad. Yeah. Imagine him telling his mother. Yeah. He's not telling anybody. That he told his shitty friends about what happened to his sister yeah. and then ruined her evening with a nightmarish dinner. Yeah, no. No, it's not happening. I think John's keeping that to himself. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I sure mm -hmm. think so too. He's probably terrified that Robin will ever tell her. Yeah, terrified. Yeah. I think he's probably a bit afraid of strike at this point yeah i really now i'm thinking like whenever it comes to strike meeting them again yeah that will be funny yeah i hope he has a chance to like make friends with john yeah and mm -hmm. have a fresh start as my mother likes to say <laughs> i'm just thinking of strike meeting and be like oh how's kyle how's Courtney? <laughs> how are they doing <laughs> Which is what he'd oh, do he if he would. was a shit disturber. <laughs> it's that mischievous bit he has. He would do that. Yeah. <laughs> but all day, Robin is hiding out in her room, attempting to block out waves of anger towards Strike and a tearfulness that kept threatening to overcome her. And I'm skipping a little bit here, but mm -hmm. her thoughts kept returning to her partner. Poor Robin. I yeah. wish she thought to take a stash of food with her to her room to hide yeah. because I feel really bad thinking of her in there starving all day. I know. She's trying to work. Like, how do you work without snacks? Maybe she has some snacks in there. And then it also says Robin wasn't in the least surprised not to have heard from him, but was damned if she'd initiate contact. Good for her. I also like that she's not surprised by his signs at all because mm -hmm. she, she knows, knows him. him. It shows that she knows exactly what he's going to do and she can predict him, his actions. I wonder what she would think if she knew that he was at home all day snatching up his phone, hoping that it's her. Oh, that would be really cute. I, <laughs> I mean, I often wish that Robin could just see inside of Strike's head. Yeah, don't we all? When she does one day learn just how much in love with her he is, oh, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be so beautiful same for him she's gonna be speechless yeah well i think strike has a sort of idea that she's attracted at least what i'm thinking of yeah. is when he figures out all of the things that she thinks about him in 45 oh, i don't yeah. think he hears that enough from people we'll get to that yeah we'll get to that it also says 
She couldn't in good conscience retract a word of what she said after watching him vomit in the gutter because she was tired of being taken for granted for in ways Strike didn't recognize. Okay, watching him vomit in the gutter is really gross. Yes. And it is a miracle that she's still attracted to him after that. <laughs> and it's from his own bad behavior. Like, good God. He is lucky that she likes him so much. But good for her again. She deserves to have those things heard by him. She deserves yeah. for him to recognize those things. Again, she needed to say it. And I'm glad that she doesn't regret it. Yeah. yeah. Just the one bit. She resented agreeing with him. Yeah. I love that bit. I do too. And I know I said this in the last episode, but I love it so much, especially because he does the exact same thing later. He super does. They're so similar. So funny. They are. There are so many instances in this book of them being similar, more so mm -hmm. than we've seen before. And I think that's really partly because this book is them becoming their true selves, especially Robin. Oh, you're going to hit me in my heart like that. Yeah, that gives me a lot of feelings. Thanks. Because soulmates. <laughs> they super are. And maybe as they become their true selves, they're also being influenced by each other. They spend a mm -hmm. lot of time together. Yeah, I like to think it's a little of both. A little of both. So the talk with Max. Well, one of the things that I really love about Max here is that he waited to talk to her he could have very easily and it would have been understandable to just knock on the door and say hey can we talk but he waited for her to come into their shared space before he approached it mm -hmm. i think that was very thoughtful of him i agree he waited all day hopefully he would have checked on her eventually to see if she starved <laughs> to death <laughs> this whole bit is where i really see max as someone that's going to be could be a good friend yeah definitely. i super agree because up to this point they've been like friendly flatmates mm -hmm. there hasn't been like any sort of real connection between them they're just they're pleasant people who are sharing a space and they're both respectful of each other which is nice but here they're having a heart to heart and an actual step towards becoming real proper friends and if there is one train that i'm always 100 percent on board on it's the train that robin needs more friends mm -hmm. she needs people to confide in <laughs> If she can actually bring herself to confide in them because she is such a private person yeah yeah we know that when she came friends with vanessa it took her months to to get around to telling her like the whole story of what happened at the honeymoon and the wedding so yeah. i think it takes her a long time to connect with people but in my opinion the more friends robin has the better i think it's sweet how max gets up to heat her food up for her oh yeah and she's worried by it she's worried by his kindness god she always jumps straight to the worst case scenario, both yeah, when someone does. is being nice to her and when someone is angry with her. She does this all the time with Strike. Like at the end of Lethal White, she was worrying that he was going to tell her she can't do the job when he's just being nice to her because she's just had a panic attack and, yeah. and a breakdown, right? Um, she has to stop catastrophizing. Well, what happened to Max? Horrifying, horrible and traumatizing. Yeah, I really feel for him. He had open heart surgery when it's really just anxiety, basically. Yeah. Palpitations. Yeah, because tachycardia is just high heart rate. So they went through a giant wormhole for nothing. You never probe, do you? I've noticed that. You don't ask a lot of questions. It's really nice that she seems to have that kind of same respect for people's privacy and people's boundaries that Strike seems to have. It's just another similarity between the two of them that's really nice. 
I like that it's acknowledged here that Robin herself is very private and reserved in some ways. It's not as obvious with her as it is with Strike because she's pleasant and she gets along with people and people like her, you know, but we don't actually see Robin open up about what she's feeling very often. She keeps it all very repressed and, and I don't think lets many people in, but it's just another way in which I think Robin and Strike are actually really similar. Max is Matthew. Yeah, I like that he was named Matthew too, that there are two Matthew exes because mm-hmm. you don't see it in books often, but you do meet people who have the same names in real life right hi Lindsay hi Lindsay (laughs) (laughs) and I just think it's a funny parallel that their shitty exes are both named Matthew (laughs) it makes me wonder which Matthew hurt JK Rowling (laughs) right (laughs) which Matthew is she pissed off at here that she's Mm -hmm. named all these horrible men after him I kind of agree with Max's Matthew here about pursuing legal action because yeah Max deserves justice and other people deserve safety from this doctor yeah absolutely still doesn't make me feel any better towards this Matthew because it's like he's trying to set Max up to be in a position where he feels less guilty for leaving him I have to think that if he'd been planning on this he wouldn't have bought the house with max because he did right and then he he signed it over out of guilt so i think that this matthew was probably in denial that it wasn't working and the move made him realize that he wanted to go chase after a hot young chef instead he's so harsh though he realized pity wasn't love yeah that is so you don't need to say that dude matthew oh robin laughing with Max when she's addressing the rape and other things that have happened to her. Oh, yeah. What do you think about this? You know, I think that it's good that she's getting to a point where she can laugh about stuff like this. Yeah, in Silkworm, Strike specifically thinks that by this point in the army, he'd have been making dark jokes with his colleagues to cope. And I think that this kind of laughter, this kind of dark comedy, at this point, she's seen and experienced so many awful things that she is getting to that point where dark humor is a coping mechanism and she started to be able to use that coping mechanism. And it's, it is a relief to laugh at something that isn't actually funny. Yeah. And Robin is an experienced enough investigator at this point that she's starting to use this coping mechanism too. Just another way in which she's growing and changing as a professional and as a person. Your next point about Max is good. I genuinely like Max. So he's opening up this conversation by telling a story of his own vulnerability. And that's such a deliberate tactic that puts them on like an equal footing before Mm -hmm. he addresses what happened with Robin. So it's a way of making her, her feel more comfortable. And I just think it shows that he's actually a really good guy. We love Max. I'm on team Max and team Wolfgang. They're a good, (laughs) a good pair. I love this bit when the conversation gets moved to strike. (laughs) Listen, about last night. I enjoyed last night, said Max. You can't be serious, said Robin. I'm completely serious. It was really useful for building my character. He's got some proper big man take no bullshit energy about him, hasn't he? (laughs) You mean he acts like a dick? (laughs) Max laughed and shrugged. Is he very different sober? Yes, said Robin. Well, I don't know. Less of a dick. (laughs) I love that phrase. Proper big man take no bullshit energy. That is a polite way of saying that he's got BDE. And I think we all know that. (laughs) And then it says, and before Max could ask anything else about her partner, she said quickly, he's right about your cooking anyway. That was fantastic. Thanks so much. I really needed that. 
diversionary tactics. Yeah. My eyes are rolling out of my head at her. Robin, (laughs) for God's sake, just talk about your feelings. Let's move on to Strike's apology. I think it's what we've all been waiting for. Finally, we're here. I love that when he calls, she doesn't even say hello. That is some proper big woman, take no bullshit energy. (laughs) And I am so proud of her. Just pick up the phone in silence. Let him speak first. It says Robin was so astonished. She said nothing for several seconds. And that's after he he says calling to apologize. I just love that when he does things like this, where he's doing things that take her by surprise, that she is speechless every time. It happens here. It happens later on in the book. I just think that's really sweet that whenever he catches her by surprise like that, that she just gets speechless. She's not prepared. She doesn't know what to do. Yeah, I agree. It's a sign of his growth. Whenever he catches her by surprise this much, it's a sign that he's growing and changing because he's defying her expectations in a good way. I want her to be astonished into speechlessness many, many times in book six. And at least one of them, she better be speechless because her mouth is otherwise (laughs) occupied. If you know what I mean. I definitely know what you mean. I agree. We all know what I mean. Mm Here's where I really get into all my feelings with his actual apology because Mm -hmm. he starts off apologizing for the little things that she mentions. You know, I'm sorry for being rude to your brother and his friends. I didn't mean that to get dragged up. Didn't think when I was reading this for the first time, I still felt tension Mm -hmm. when he says, so we're okay. Yeah. Yes. Said Robin, wondering whether it was true. I felt that same thing. I was wondering whether it was true. I was really nervous for like a second. And then you get the next part. Yeah. Well, first, I like the way that they ask each other about Nick and Ilsa. Mm-hmm. I think it's just sweet that they both are sort of thinking about their other two friends and hoping that they're okay and acknowledging that there was a weird part in this argument where they took sides on another couple's argument to make it their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're so married, <laughs> these two. I like how you just referred to another couple as if another they are couple. one. <laughs> Listen, these two are a couple in my head. Well, they're going to be. It's fine. Spiritually, they're married. They just don't know they're married yet. (laughs) They're the last ones to know. That's their fault. (laughs) I also like, before we get to the meat of the apology, that he did bring up the first thing he apologized for was leaving her open to having a very painful moment of her history dragged into conversation. Mm -hmm. Because that wasn't even in the list of topics he thought of in the shower. I just think it shows that he's been reflecting and he's been sorting through what he actually did wrong and he understood what the things that hurt her most were but then just the best part comes up because like i said before i was really worried that they weren't really okay but then he makes it okay because he gets to the heart of the issue which is if i've taken you for granted said strike i'm sorry you're the best i've got read the rest of it when she cries yeah i love that She says, oh, for fuck's sake, strike, said Robin, abandoning the pretense that she wasn't crying as she snorted back tears. What? You just, you're bloody infuriating. Why? Saying that now, that's not the first time I've said it. It is actually. I've told other people. Yeah, well, said Robin, now laughing and crying simultaneously as she reached for the tissues. You see how that isn't the same thing as telling me. 
Yeah, I suppose, said Strike. Now you mention it. It's so cute that she's getting so welled up just from him apologizing. It's, oh, I love it. I like that she started crying almost immediately and then was just trying to pretend that she wasn't until she just gives up and starts doing the laugh cry thing, which, yeah, okay, we've all done that. Snorting back tears. I love that. Should we talk about how he has actually said this before? He has, and he said it to her. He did. And you have the receipts. I have it. So chapter 62 of Lethal White, I don't want to lose you because you're the best I've got. Yeah. So he has said it. He has said it. I mean, is this a mistake? That's kind of what I lean towards. It's like with the whole funeral thing that- Yeah. Forgetting a whole funeral. (laughs) For those people who aren't, uh, is aware of the gas. Robin says in Trouble Blood that she's been to, what, two funerals in her life? Rochelle and then yeah Rochelle just completely and her forgetting yeah. Matthew's mother I like to pretend that she just wants to forget his mother because she sounded <laughs> awful yeah. yeah she was pretty that's pretty what terrible. I have in my head um anyway yeah so just uh just a mistake is this slightly different because in Lethal White he's very much talking professionally and this is personally is he saying in my life you're the best I've got well oh, I don't oh. actually think so because he wouldn't have told other people that yeah but I mean he does feel that way about her so I don't know I think it's probably just a mistake but I sort of had canon that Robin herself has forgotten he said this because she could have when he said that in Lethal White she was she was in a really emotional place and maybe she didn't properly take it in but whether it was a mistake or not I like that Strike doesn't correct her he says I've said it before well to other people he just absorb it and he understands that the point is that he needs to tell her more often and more clearly that she's important to him and that he's grateful throughout this there's rain as well same as the last chapter and yet it's slightly different it feels more healing than the sort of harsher cleansing yeah, well, they're not in it they're sheltered from it they're sheltered from it connected to each other and oh somehow the text from charlotte had made him realize he had to call robin had to make things right with her before he set off for Cornwall and Joan. Now the sound of her voice and her laughter acted on him as it usually did by making everything seem fractionally less awful. Somehow. I love it so much. I do too. It's so important for his growth as a character. Not only is he acknowledging that Robin isn't Charlotte and he can't treat her the same, but he's realizing that he has to be different. I think that's the most important. His behavior has to change. Yeah, it is so important. And I think that that moment I was talking about earlier when he was sort of blindsided by those texts that he thought were from Robin, I think that was the moment where he was like, shit, I have been doing this wrong. He's had that sort of realization that this pattern isn't the same. Yeah. I'm just so proud of him. And her voice and laughter making everything less awful every time he hears it. That's love, baby. It is. Yeah, it super is. Uh, When Robin tells him to be careful because she heard on the news that three people had died in the storm. It's funny because it also mentions that in the previous chapter that Strike was watching the news and heard the same thing. I like that it's mentioned for both of them because while they're not speaking, while they're in the aftermath of this argument, it kind of is a thing that connects them in a way. It's kind of like when people say oh, we're far apart, but we're looking at the same moon or some crap like that. I love that. (laughs) We're far apart emotionally, but we've both got the BBC on in the background. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so romantic. It's so cheesy. (laughs) I like it. Okay, good. 
I love it. Something that I was thinking about during this reread was just because it's so dangerous out there, another motivator for Strike to apologize might be like, hey, not that it's necessarily a huge possibility, but he's going to potentially put his life out on the line while he's going to go visit Joan. You know, you never know what could happen. You know, he wants to make sure that he takes care of that before he leaves. He can't just leave that. And I think that that's a nice contrast to, you know, what happened with Charlotte, where you would be stationed somewhere, they'd argue, they'd split up, he would get stationed somewhere else, and there would be no resolution at all. Yeah. Here, he's like, no, I I can't just move on to the next thing without making this right. I love that. I like that Robin was furious with Strike, but clearly still noticing relevant news and actually probably really worried about whether or not he was going to be okay, even though she was mad at him. Yeah. Oh, I love this apology scene. I just want to reiterate that. Yeah, I can't pretend I don't wish you were driving. Lucy's bloody terrible behind the wheel. You can stop flattering me now. I've forgiven you. (laughs) I love that. So cute. I like that clearly Strike, so he's decided he needs to tell her when she's important or when she's good Mm -hmm. at things. And he's immediately starting. He's like, well, might as well start now and start saying the things that I think about Robin, which are that she's amazing at everything and that I couldn't get by without her and that she's the only one I want to drive me. I know that a lot of us love this next bit when she says, well, I'll be thinking about you, said Robin, keeping everything crossed. Cheers, Robin. Keep in touch. After Strike had hung up, Robin sat for a while, savoring the sudden feeling of lightness that had filled her. I mean, first of all, of course she's going to be thinking about him. When is she not? Yeah. And vice versa. Right. When are they not thinking about each other? And I just love that small bit about him asking her to keep in touch. Like, hey, don't feel guilty about reaching out. I want and need to hear from you. They're so in love. They're stupid in love. (laughs) They are dummies and also in love. But then the last bit that she finds Paul Satchel in Lemington Spa. Good for you, Robin. Yes. She's having a good night now. Going back to the epigraph of this chapter, whose far were better turned to other flame. It feels symbolic that she's been stuck all day with work, but the second she makes up with Strike, there magically it is. She's found the thing she's looking for. Like, they need to be in sync for the work to work, you know? And this is just the universe saying that. I love that. It totally makes sense. And that ties into, doesn't that happen later with Strike and Pat with putting the radio on and yeah, the team meshing. Meshing. Back to Dr. Gupta. Yeah, exactly. And I'm also just happy that before, I mean, it has to be hard to do overnight surveillance and how much harder would it have been if she hadn't made up with Strike, hadn't found this new piece of information. She gets to go off to work being happy and excited about a new lead. Yeah. Good for her. Good for you, Robin. I've always found it odd the way the chapter cuts off in the middle of Satchel's bio, the way it does. But rereading it, the bit where it says that he challenges the viewer to face primal fears and examine preconceptions seems kind of thematically appropriate to, to yeah. Strike's journey in the book to me. So I'm I guess that's an explanation, a sort of hint as to what's happening in the rest of the book. And now we get to cry. Oh, this chapter's beautiful, but oh my god. I'm never ready to be hurt like this. Moving on to 44. So this chapter, Strike and Lucy make their way to Cornwall to see Joan. Huge sea of sorrow and tempestuous grief, wherein my feeble bark is tossed along. 
Far from the hoped haven of relief, why do thy cruel billows beat so strong, and thy moist mountains each on others throng, threatening to swallow up my fearful life? I kind of like this hoped haven of relief. That makes me think that it's almost referring to Robin a little bit. Yeah, he is he is far from his relief. Wherein my feeble bark is tossed along. It's been a long time that Joan has been ill and that they've been dreading this moment. And it's here and this whole chapter is so painful. It's the imagery of the Sea of Sorrow. It fits with the chapter so well. Strike in Lucy's journey. I like how it's described as having a dreamlike quality. It's very real, right? When something bad is happening, it's like, is this really happening? Is this real? Exactly. I like that they're very much a team. Yeah, I love how it refers to them as brother and sister. Yeah. Brother and sister took it in turns to drive, bound by a single objective and temporarily freed from all other concerns. I think this whole journey is written so beautifully. It's nice to see this different side of Lucy, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're normally getting a very annoying annoying side efficient practical patient resolute she's good in a crisis so i think carmen isn't the only one who's good in a crisis here clearly lucy can be as well do you want to talk about the water the water we should talk about the water i feel like all of the storms and rain throughout the whole book have been building up to this final desperate journey through a flood that they literally have to wade and boat through right and water again we have cleansing we have water dissolving everything but the essential core which i think speaks to that bit you just mentioned about strike and lucy in essence when she strip away all of the resentment and the expectations and the annoyance that being two very different people have sort of built up between them you have they are brother and sister and they're in this together And then we have water sort of symbolizing rebirth as well. And they're literally traveling through it to find death at the end. I think that this moment in the books is sort of pivotal in his emotional journey in that loss can make people reassess what's important. I think that losing Joan in this chapter becomes a catalyst for serious reflection and change and that the environment with the storms and floods and the cleansing rebirthing water is is a symbol of the transformative effect that this chapter is is going to have on him. Here's a question for you, and here's something that I was thinking about. In my opinion, anyway, I think in order for this huge, pivotal change in Strike, in order for that to occur, I feel like he needs to have this huge fight with Robin. And then he also needed to have lost Joan very soon after that to have that one-two punch of like, just knock some sense into him. And be like, holy shit, I've been taking Robin for granted. I've been taking my family for granted. I need to get my shit together and, you know, show more appreciation for the people who choose to be in my life and who Mm -hmm. I choose to have in my circle. But my question is, do you think that he would have done this without one or the other? Do you also think that it had to be both? I don't know. I mean, I think that artistically there's a reason J.K. Rowling writes one right after the other, right? Mm-hmm. because they are both the things that sort of snap him into a different emotional path or that spark sort of this growth that he's slowly been getting ready for. I'd like to think he'd have come to it eventually, but Rowling makes deliberate choices here in what she has happened in this central point of the novel. Let's talk about Polworth coming to the rescue. 
what a good friend. And it's also really touching that there's these kindness of these other strangers. I know it says that they knew him from school, but basically they're strangers. How nice though, that people from his past are showing yeah. up just to do the right thing and help him and Lucy get to Joan before she passes. Yeah. Connection to his roots. I can forgive Paul Worth for a lot of the shit he says about women when he does good stuff like this. Because again, it's the actions that mm-hmm. sort of show who you are. And yeah, what he says about women is shitty and his attitude is shitty. And he's probably not super great to his wife all the time. But then you have him do stuff like this for his friend. And you're like, that's a good dude at his core. I like the image of little Lucy getting a piggyback ride from the big guy too. That's a bit of like adorable. And then you've got Strike literally leaving his pride behind him again with mm-hmm. the rebirth and getting physically supported by two of his school friends. Yeah. Because wading through feet of icy floodwater with prosthetic leg has got to be absolutely a nightmare. When they see Ted and his tears, what a stressful and emotional day that must have been for Ted. We already know people have died in this and it's dangerous for them to do what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So he must have been stressed because of that, but also just emotional at all of the people who have come to help them get there yeah. so that Joan could see her children. Yes, I'm going to call them her children before she dies. Oh, how dare you? I am so in my feelings right now. <laughs> I'm going to agree with that decision to call them her children because Carmen himself said that the fortune teller was wrong and that right. she had children. So that's canon. It's canon, baby. It's just really sweet. It's it really nice. sweet. It's really emotional. I really like Ted's tears there. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad they can be there for Joan when she passes, but I'm also so glad that they're there for Ted so that yeah. he doesn't have to face losing her alone because it seems like they had a really loving really lasting marriage and mm-hmm. it's just heartbreaking Carmen had better tell Ted that Ted's his dad yeah Ted needs to hear that I want Carmen to say that and it better have happened off screen or will happen at some point yeah I'm sure that Joan told him sure that, yeah that strike said that but it's kind of just like goes back to the last chapter with I've told other people it's not the same it's not yeah. the same yes yeah. exactly and I think hopefully he's learned that lesson and we just didn't get to see it I like this here when Greg arrived, the boys came running out of the car toward their mother and the whole family clung to each other while Strike and Ted looked on, united in their aloneness, unmarried man and soon to be widower. I think it's sort of this, again, going back to the theme of Strike seeing the benefits that having these sort of family ties and relationship ties can bring in that you have someone there to support you in these hard moments and that his sister has... A family that she needs to be there for her and that do come to be there for her. Yeah. On another note, why? Yeah. Why? Oh my God. Yes. Why can the children not sleep on an air mattress or something in the living room? Why can Strike not have this room? I am outraged that these- I do not understand it. I don't yeah. get it either. They're kids. Give them some sleeping bags in the living room. Tell them they're camping out. I, uh, it drives me crazy. They don't even have to deal with back pain. And yet. the fact that he just yeah. doesn't complain <laughs> at all. Yeah, I can't imagine how uncomfortable that's got to be. My back is aching for him. Yeah. But speaking of the kids, Jack going to the pub with Polworth and Strike is just so cute. I love Jack. (laughs) I love how much he loves his uncle. It's so cute. It's friggin' mm-hmm. adorable is what it is. I love, okay, Shanker's call. Yeah. And Strike answers, it's Shanker, got your message. I left that 10 days ago, said Strike. I've been busy, you ungrateful piece of shit. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> said Strike. <laughs> That's our Shanker. I love yep. him. <laughs> it's so good. 
<laughs> but the important part of this, I, well, I think it's important is when they're talking about the snuff film, Shanker's explaining she would have done something really bad for that to have happened. And I like Strike's response here. Deserved it, you reckon, said Strike. As he surveyed the flat sea, it didn't look capable now of the violence it had inflicted upon the town. Mm-hmm. I like this for two reasons. One, I like that Strike is challenging this idea that yeah. she would have done something bad, so deserved it. Feels important that he does that. I just wish that Robin could know that he's out mm-hmm. here saying stuff like this because she wanted right. to know that he saw this other woman as a human being who was mm-hmm. killed. I just, I wish she knew that he was reminding other men that this woman was a human being. And I know it's Corman's perspective, but it's always Corman's perspective that she wouldn't have deserved what she got. But I wonder if he'd have said anything to Shanker if he hadn't had Robin in his life, if he hadn't been sort of growing with Robin and seeing things through her eyes. Because in my head, I picture like Strike with a little Robin living in his head. A little Robin on his shoulder. Every two minutes, mm-hmm. Robin on his shoulder. What would Robin think of this? What would Robin do here? Which is canon that he has done before, wondering what Robin would think. But yeah, I, t- I too agree. What's the second reason? The second reason I like this is when it says it didn't look capable now of the violence it had inflicted upon the town. It, it makes me think of Ricci, old, oh. can't speak in his nursing home you look at that old frail man and don't think of the violence that it inflicted upon this woman that is such a good spot Ooh, what a cool contrast it did bring up more fear about Richie for me mm. the shanker's warning again and the fact that he stopped him yeah and i'm afraid that Richie's gonna be back me the too one. don't I'm say very it worried. <laughs> i'm gonna say it you know i'm gonna say it <laughs> yep they're coming back i think we can almost guarantee it yeah i like the bit here where it's shanker who shouts at the phone to stop strike from hanging up mm-hmm. <laughs> which strikes this is the first time ever uh, when we've seen strike do that to shanker before so their relationship is unusual it's very transactional but this shows that that shanker does care about corman and doesn't actually want him to get shot through the head and, and would in fact actively like to avoid corman being shot through the head and now I'm going to use the space to predict that Shanker dies in book six because he finds out there's a danger to strike and, and tries to warn him. Just going to throw that prediction out there. I've been worried about Shanker. I thought he was going to die in book five, but let's go back to Jack. Ah, cutie. We love Jack. He's greatly enjoying Polar's approval. He's having yeah. a great time. Makes me wonder how much attention he gets from Greg. Mm-hmm. Might be a big assumption, but... I think it's a pretty spot on assumption. Yeah. Ken's? Uh, well, I definitely don't think that you're far off because I am I'm suspicious of mm-hmm. Greg. I have my suspicions there. And so do you, Pools, from what I have heard. You think he's just suspicious oh, as fuck. I can elaborate on why. Yeah, please do. Yeah, Greg is sus for the following reasons. The very first time we hear about him, he's being compared to Matthew. Yeah, <laughs> good point sus he's also compared to matthew in the first book when he mans the ipod at the party guess who manned the playlist at a party Uh. in lethal white matthew greg going on a sus business trip over valentine's day when his wife's mother is dying sus Mm -hmm. i just think all these matthew comparisons and this very suspicious business trip aren't there for nothing. And I'm gearing up for the uh, Lucy divorce plot 
in book <laughs> six or seven. Yeah, maybe that whole Valentine's Day thing is going to be like in Lethal White whenever Robin gets those texts that are meant for Sarah. Yeah, yeah exactly like that. The little plant. Mm-hmm. Although I knew the instant I read those texts that Matthew was cheating with Sarah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was yeah. so like, excited. Instantly, I was like, oh, Matthew, you shit. Yeah. Yeah. I was happy. I mean, I was happy, I was happy too. I'm like, oh, good. Thank now God. Robin's going to have a reason to yes, leave. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but sorry, we were talking about Jack being the middle child and maybe being ignored. Yeah. I love this. Can I try some of that beer? He asked his uncle. Don't push it. Such drink. That's the <laughs> cutest shit I've ever read. I love it. Uncle mode. Some proper big dad take no bullshit <laughs> energy right there. Big mm-hmm. dad energy is the new BD. Yes. <laughs> Also, can I just say right here, Polworth, you gotta stop trying to make Cornish nationalism happen because it is not going to happen. Like fetch? Like fetch. Cornish nationalism is never going to happen. So just stop. Stop driving everyone crazy, Polworth. I wonder how many people will understand that reference. Everyone's <laughs> watched Mean Girls. Everyone gets that reference. Come We've on. already made two in this in this episode alone so far. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. It's the Mean Girls episode. Okay, so come to the morning of Joan's death. Oh, are you ready? No, never. He said, just made you tea, whispered Strike. It's in the pot in the kitchen. I'll sit with her for a bit. You're a good lad, whispered Ted, clapping Strike on the arm. She's asleep now, but I had a little chat with her at four. Most, she said, for days. I love that he gets to talk to his wife the most he has in days right before she passes away. I mean, I'm glad that Corbin got that last moment with her, but it's nice to know that Ted also had that time with her. Say, I really love this next one. It's a really nice little bit of imagery, but especially popping up right now is just so beautiful. The paper was decorated with small bunches of purple flowers, and Strike could remember tracing geometric shapes between them with his forefinger as a small child when he climbed into bed with Ted and Joan early in the morning when both were still sleepy and he wanted breakfast and a trip to the beach. That's just such a cute mental image of little kid strike just climbing into bed with them early in the morning. I like happy kid strike memories. It's, yes. Yeah. That's precious. It is precious. Can I have a bit of a side note here? Sidebar? I'll allow it. I just want to point out, because my argument is that strike is a little hard on kids. <laughs> in the beginning of the book, he's annoyed that Luke and Adam want breakfast and to go to the beach. And here he's doing the same thing. Just want to point that out. Yeah, he did the same thing growing up. <laughs> I'm reminded of that quote from Dumbledore where it says, I think that some people would forget what it was like to be young. And I think that maybe that applies to him a little bit. My point is, very specifically, J.K. Rowling put in the same exact thing. Yes. Breakfast on the beach. Yes. I'm just saying, I think he's a little bit hard and has a little bit high expectations on children's behavior. But we can get to that later. Sure. So he sits next to Joan. It's me, Joan, Corm. Ted's having breakfast. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard him refer to himself as Corm? I don't know. It's not important. I'm just curious. I guess it's just a sign that he's he's seeing himself as her son. She calls him Corm, I assume, right? And he's being tender and oh, 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 this is so upsetting. <laughs> Sorry. I'll get to the, no. the yeah. next bit. Joan smiled. Her hand was a tiny claw now. The fingers twitched. Strike took it into his own. She said something he couldn't hear and he lowered his large head to her face. What did you say? Your good man. Oh, I don't know about that, muttered Strike. 
please just crush my heart into a <laughs> half a billion fucking pieces. Yeah, oh I'm leaving. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm out of the building. I can't have Oh, don't this. leave. Don't leave. <laughs> oh my god. There are multiple things that are heartbreaking about this. One is that Strike doesn't seem to think of himself as a good man, which, oh my mm-hmm. god, that's just, there are so many different layers to that. But I think that it also speaks to his ability to change past where he's, you know, acted like an asshole and taken people for granted and he's made stupid choices. But just like with Polworth, at the core of who he is, he's a good person. Same thing with Strike. He's not a bad person because he's made bad choices. He's a very good person on the inside. He's a good man at the core of who he is. Just before this, Ted says, you're a good lad. And I like that he says that to him, but I think there's a difference saying to your child, you're a good kid, as opposed to letting them know that the person that they've become, you're a good man, you're a good adult, you're a good person. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that she says that to him here. And I love that it's reflected in the next couple of chapters with Robin's thoughts about him. I would agree with that. I would say to me that you're a good lad is is very much you're a good son to Joan Mm -hmm. and a good son to me. Whereas, as you said, you're a good man is sort of her recognition of who he is outside of that role, which is one of the first times she's done that. She, he said before, she always likes to be slightly above him and see him mm-hmm. as her little boy in here. She's mm-hmm. not saying that. She's saying that he's a good person who does the right things for the right reasons and, and that he's able to change his behavior and, and keep getting better. And I have to go cry over there <laughs> for a little while. It says, he thought of all the times he could have visited and hadn't. All of those missed opportunities to call. All those times he had forgotten her birthday. Robin comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Yep. Whose other birthday have you forgotten this book, Strike? Yeah, like I think we were talking about this earlier, that Joan's death, he can use this as an opportunity to be different with the women that he loves. Mm-hmm. It's really putting in into relief for him, into pretty stark relief that he's taking the women in his life for granted and that he should take those opportunities for connection where they present themselves. Yeah. And it goes back to that point, like, yes, it's an absolute tragedy that this is happening to him, but it's what's making him reassess, you know. It makes me think about that bit where he witnesses that old lady's birthday party and he wonders where he's going to mm-hmm. be and who he's going to be with. And it's sort of things like this that make you figure out who that is that you want to be with and where it is you want to be and what's important to you and what's important to you and i i just want to throw in that in book six we'd better see him being there for ted because i will riot if he just (laughs) does the same shit to ted and doesn't start being there for him as well you know on a more steady basis so just putting that on the request list if jkr is listening to this oh god please don't say that uh, no because she needs to know she needs to listen so that she mm-hmm. gets my list of demands i mean polite requests not <laughs> okay. demands that demands would be if i had a hostage i don't have a hostage no we're not going full not going we're misery. Not getting a hostage <laughs> we are i'm simply making requests <laughs> all right should i do this last quote go for it she peered up at him and then making a supreme effort she whispered i'm proud of you He wanted to speak, but something was blocking his throat. After a few seconds, he saw her eyelids drooping. I love you, Joan. The words came out so hoarsely, they were almost inaudible. But he thought she smiled as she sank back into a sleep from which she would never wake. Just rip my heart out. Stomp it on the ground. I didn't need it. I wasn't using it. It's fine. 
I wonder if this is the first time that he's ever said I love you to her before. I bet he did as a child, but as an adult, yeah, maybe. J.K. Rowling is so, so good about writing stuff that's really, really heartbreaking like this. Mm -hmm. And it's just a really gorgeously written um, end to her life. It really brings to mind one of my favorite chapters of everything that she's written from the Harry Potter series was in the final book, whenever, spoiler alert, Harry is walking to Voldemort and, you know, he has the resurrection stone. And that whole scene, it's just as gorgeously written. It's so beautiful. And I just, I love it so much. I'm really glad that Carmen got to say that to her and that she got to hear him say that he loves her. Especially if it was the first time in a long time, as you so nicely pointed out to me, Ken's, because I don't need my heart anymore. Again, maybe he should tell other people that he loves them. Hint, hint, Carm. Yeah. What a beautiful set of chapters. What emotional roller coaster this book is. It is, but it's so, so good. And that's why this book is the best one. This is the best one. I love it so much. So do I. Our next set of chapters are going to be good too. I'm really looking forward to them. From here on, it's just like, bam, bam, bam. So So much is happening and it's all so great. You should come and do them with us. Oh, (laughs) I mean, if you think you're getting rid of me at this point. I think you should just come on and do all of them with us. I would be very happy to do that because I love talking about these two dummies and their love story. So I will be on for as as long as you'll have me on. We would love that. Is this just yeah. because you want more bloopers for the blooper reel? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm really good at giving those. <laughs> You're good at giving bloopers, but yes, I think you add a ton of value and we're really excited to have you permanently yes. with us. Thanks, guys. I mean, I, that's really great. And I too am excited for that. We'll be back in the next couple of weeks uh, with our next episode that's going to be covering chapters 45 and 46, which is going to be a lot of fun. 45 is another one of those real good shippy sort of chapters. So very excited. I've been waiting for it since Career of Evil. I'll explain why later. (laughs) Yes, we will get into that with the next episode. Thank you so much for listening, guys. If you enjoy what you've heard so far, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss in the show, you can always email us at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.